0: Welcome to the Room Now podcast. It's the 2nd of August, 2019, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week, the TOFA Black Box Story, how to keep your gout patients out of trouble for something totally different. How about a spot of tea? My apologies to all of the UK for a very bad English accent. I guess I should have done it in Brooklyn. Yo. You want some tea or what? Tea could be the answer to osteoporosis and fracture risk. What? This and more in this week's edition of the Room Now podcast. We'll start with my favorite subject, again, Stills disease. An interesting study looked at the association between serum IL-18 levels uh, and the association with Stills disease and risk of MAS. As you know IL-18 is very much produced in the same manner as is IL-1. It's sort of uh, caspase and uh, it, dependent. It is um, made by the inflammasome. Uh, when IL-1 is made, usually IL-18 is made and they have uh, reversed uh, down regulators to regulate their production. Uh, IL-18 has been associated with activity and disease in Stills disease. Um, a small study of 40 patients with systemic JIA showed that IL-18 levels were elevated even in inactive patients, but were very high in patients with active disease and even higher in those with MAS and a history of MAS, MAS being the macrophage activation syndrome. It was strongly correlated, a uh, correlation coefficient of 0.74 with ferritin, less so with uh, CXCL9, uh, the chemokine, 0.56, and S100 proteins, again, 0.47, suggesting this is uh, in play in patients with Still's disease and may be useful in diagnosing those possibly at risk for MAS. Very high levels could be associated with a greater risk of MAS. Again, the that's uh, the hard thing here. The hard thing is making the diagnosis. The harder thing is identifying early those who are turning into uh, macrophage activation, and I think the the clues there are pretty obvious. Um, a high white count becomes a, a dropping white count. Thrombocytosis becomes thrombocytopenia. Um, ferritin levels are astronomical and very, very high. Uh, these are people who are developing a, a, a cytokine storm and will need to be treated differently. An interesting study looks at the association of uh, metalloproteinases, specifically MMP7, and patients who have. Uh, myositis, specifically the antisynthetase patients uh, uh, who have myositis and also those who have the MDA5 antibody. Um, this particular association looked at the risk of having PMDM, polymyositis, dermatomyositis, associated interstitial lung disease in these um, in these two cohorts and what the risk would be if you looked at MMP7 levels. They found a fairly strong correlation um, not only with having ILD, but also with a worse prognosis and worse survival, an odds ratio of 18.0 if you have elevated MMP7 levels. Again, a biomarker in uh, patients with myositis beyond CPK and aldolase, um, it would be welcome. I don't know, it's totally necessary. Uh, and I think that these patients in general have uh, a fairly high morbidity, if not mortality, if they go unrecognized. But it's nice to look into a biomarker that could be predictive and is not currently being used in practice. I found an interesting study of a thousand patients followed for 10 years and looked at what the associations might be with abdominal aortic calcifications. You see it all the time on KUBs and other imaging films and it's there and you wonder, "Mm, is that just age? Is that someone has extensive atherosclerosis, or could that mean more? In this particular study, they showed that having moderate to severe AAC, abdominal aortic calcification scores, was associated with an increased fracture risk. Not a small one, but about a 50% increase, uh, and that was highly significant. This was not otherwise predicted by other markers of bone strength, and so this finding is either a really interesting you know, factoid, or it's uh, something that, you may want to pay attention to. I have a few nice reports on gout this week. Um, one study I found really interesting was that if you're treating a gout cohort, in this case they were treating 124 patients with gout, who also had high cholesterol, high hyperlipidemia, and high tri- triglycerides, that when they looked at the, co- the subset who were on urate lowering therapy, either with febuxostat, allopurinol, or the one that's not available in the United States, but is in the EU, benbromarone Benz Bromarone. someone's going to have to explain that one to me. Um, they did show that urate-lowering therapy not only lowered uric acid levels and helped to manage gout, but was also associated with a significant reduction in lipid levels. And, and I think that's important because we know that patients with gout, um, the uric acid tends to run with a lot of other bad players. It runs with glucose, creatinine, lipid levels, obesity. Again, it's part of the, I think it's part of the metabolic syndrome. I think that treating hyperuricemia has many um, downstream effects and this could be one of them. So it'll be interesting to watch your patients who have hyperlipidemia treated or otherwise and see that when they go on effective urate lowering therapy, what happens to their lipid levels. Check it out, let us know. Another study looked at the association between gout and surgical flares. Uh, In this particular uh, study, they looked at 70 patients prospectively and found, and these were patients who actually were going into surgery, um, found that nearly half of them, 44% of them, had a post-surgical flare uh, of their gout uh, after surgery. Uh, In their analysis, they showed that the risk factors for uh, this post-surgical flare were patients who had elevated levels of um, uric acid above nine before surgery. So pre-surgical urate levels gave you as much as a fourfold higher risk if it was above nine for developing a future gouty attack after surgery. Um, also, again, the changes of SUA before and after surgery was somewhat predictive, um, and uh, allopurinol itself reduced the risk, um, and being on allopurinol also reduced the risk by almost 85%. For those who did have a post-surgical flare of gout the mean time to flare was 3.7 days so it's not common in day one but it is common thereafter and could be common out a number of different days what was interesting a little tidbit from this particular study was that uh, of the gout flares that occurred they were more likely to occur in the knee than an mtp1 so we think of pedagra as being the leading um, manifestation of gout well in surgery uh, in gout patients who may flare it could be the knee Now of course, surgery, flare in the knee, is it septic arthritis or is it gout? Again, only a rheumatologist will know, thank God you're a rheumatologist. Um, The NHANE study also showed um, an association between uh, higher uric acid levels and an increased risk of coronary artery disease and stroke and mortality from stroke This was mainly seen in women uh, over the age of 50s. There was no link between serum uric acid and overall um, cause of death, overall um, uh, 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 mortality rates or cancer mortality rates. But again, NHANES analysis um, showed that again, the uric acid level in patients with gout was associated with a higher um, rate of coronary artery disease and stroke mortality. Again, that's not in gout. It's actually overall serum uric acid levels. Correction there. So, spot a tea, what's that all about? Well, an odd study, and I don't know if this is a factoid or something that's worth really considering, but uh, a fairly large meta analysis of 16 studies and 700,000 participants looked at the association between tea consumption and the risk of fractures. And when you compare those who had a high tea consumption and those who had a low tea consumption, they showed that higher tea intake was associated with a 14% reduced risk of fractures, and that was significant. So why would that be? Are you, is it really the tea or are we profiling some other unrelated aspect like smoking? Well, tea drinkers are often smokers, but smokers are often associated with a higher risk of fracture, not a lower risk of fracture. So is it something else as it body habitus, as other factors. Couldn't tell from this um, abstract whether what, what the factor there was, but tea is a good thing, also, if you happen to have osteoporosis. What's a good thing? Well, maybe not testosterone therapy. You know, I have a number of patients, as I'm sure you do, who are taking testosterone replacement therapy for a lot of different reasons. Obviously, most of them are male, most of them are doing it for Um, overall well-being for um, sexual uh, enhancement or performance or interest Um, and the question is does it really work I'm not necessarily of the belief that this is really an effective hormonal manipulation the vast majority are taking it and the question is is there a downside to it well in this case there was a fairly large study of 15,000 participants who were over the age of 45 who had low testosterone, no um, history of testicular or hypogonadotropism. uh, And, you know, over a 20 plus year period, it was shown that testosterone replacement therapy was associated with a 21% increased risk of cardiovascular events, either MI, strokes, or TIAs. When, um, uh, and again, the risk here, when they looked at it was highest in the first two years of uh, the hormonal therapy. So if your patients are asking for guidance, uh, consider that kind of data. A few more interesting reports. I've always been interested in the patients who are on TNF inhibitors and who develop psoriasis when they have rheumatoid arthritis and no history of psoriasis. Uh, So in my clinics, you know, I think I have about 500 or so RA patients Uh, and I probably have two or three who've developed psoriasis from taking a TNF inhibitor. So not all 500 are on TNF inhibitors, so maybe it's only 300 on TNF inhibitors and two or three. That's a one in 100 risk. Well, the population risk, based on some well-done studies, says that it's only about one in a 1,000 patients on TNF inhibitors will develop uh, the complication of new-onset incident psoriasis. Now, there are also reports of patients who have psoriasis or RA patients who have psoriasis and going on a TNF inhibitor where they may have a flare, and it's supposed to be pretty rare. Well, this particular analysis comes from the German biologics uh, registry called RABIT, and they analyzed uh, almost 15,000 patients with RA who did not have psoriasis and another 375 RA patients who did have psoriasis and looked at the influence of being on a biologic, compared to being on other um, uh, conventional DMARDs, and they compared biologic use as either a TNF inhibitor or the non-TNF inhibitors, specifically or tuximab, tozolizumab, and what they showed was that there was an increased risk of um, TNF inhibitor-induced psoriasis. The rate was three per 1,000 patient years, not that different than what's been in the literature, suggesting that this is a really uncommon event. Again, that 15,000 patients there was only 117 new incident cases of psoriasis. That this rate was significantly higher than that seen in uh, when compared to conventional DMARDS, and that conventional DMARDS were not that different when compared to um, um, the other non-TNF biologics. So non cnf biologics did not have a higher rate of, 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 of new onset or flare of psoriasis. Again, interesting numbers if you're advising patients about what's happening with them and their risk of psoriasis. There's a, a study that came out last week about the efficacy or lack thereof of abatacept in patients who have systemic sclerosis. Now, you know that there's a lot about this right now with TNF inhibitors and systemic sclerosis. Um, this particular study looked at only 88, and again, it it's hard to do these studies, but 88 patients who had the widespread form. Uh, this is the diffuse cutaneous form of systemic sclerosis. These patients going in had fairly significant um, sclerodermic skin disease, and that was a primary outcome change in modified Rodman skin scores, MRSS scores. Going in, their modified Rodnan scores was over 22. That's a lot of skin disease. Uh, And at the end of 12 months, either getting placebo or getting abatacept, the changes were not significantly different. Yes, there was more reduction in MRSS. It was minus 6.24 units in the abatacept group versus minus 4.49 in the placebo group, but that was not significant. Also not significant were changes in lung function as measured by forced vital capacity. I don't think there's another disappointment for the management of scleroderma, um, and uh, I I wouldn't advocate using it in in the future or studying it in the future. Uh, Lastly, tofacitinib last Friday, uh, just as we went to press on our last podcast, there was a a press release from uh, Pfizer And from the FDA about a new black box um, or sorry boxed warning they don't do black box anymore it's scarier than it really needs to be but it's a boxed warning for tofacitinib uh, with a higher risk of venous thromboembolic events, blood clots and death when using the 10 milligram BID dose. Now 10 milligram BID is not the dose of tofacitinib for anything but ulcerative colitis we're not treating ulcerative colitis, and there's numerous reminders in this um, press release that this should not be a dose that's being used in rheumatoid arthritis, and hence it shouldn't really pertain to us, but then again, does it? You know, have hit the market with really no reports of, of VTEs, um, and they had a post-marketing requirement to do a safety study, and in this safety study, high-risk individuals, um, they were looking at the risk of cardiovascular outcomes and infection and cancer outcomes, and compare those on tofacitinib, different doses, to, and this is an RA population, to those um, receiving adalimumab. Well, in the end, what they found was uh, only the 10 milligram BID dose posed a risk. Uh, in almost 3,800 patient years of exposure with tofacitinib, uh, there were 19 cases of pulmonary embolism on the tofacitinib group, but there was only three cases in the 3,900 patient years of adalimumab exposure. That's why that's a part of the box warning. And similarly, there were more deaths in patients on tofacitinib, 10 milligrams BID only, compared to those on adalimumab, 45 versus 25 deaths. And that's why that's in there. So again, uh, this I think tells us more about the risk of VTE. We know it's increased in rheumatoid arthritis. We, it appears now that it may be increased further by the use of uh, JAK inhibitors uh, and we've seen that with baricitinib. Uh, we have other JAKs in development. I believe this is going to be a class effect. Hence, if you're going on a JAK inhibitor, my advice uh, is one, treat them for a shingles risk by giving them the Shingrix vaccine ahead of time and two, Um, if they're at risk or have a history of VTEs, pulmonary embolism, DVTs, they're probably not a candidate and should seek other therapy. And obviously you shouldn't be using high-dose JAK inhibitor therapy. Lastly, um, check out my piece on the war on RA. It's the second installment. This one is all about you, the rheumatologist, and why rheumatologists are the ones who have to make the big changes to fight the war on RA. I'm gonna do two more of these. Want your input, want you to join in become one of the soldiers in the war against RA. We'll talk to you next week. Oh, one more thing. If you are a member of Room Now Live, you know, you can go, uh, you're gonna get an invitation today or um, on Tuesday to go in and do the post-test. I need you to do the post-test. We need some data. It's what we do in education. Please do the post-test. You could actually get free registration for next year's meeting if you do that. But you had to have been a participant and signed on and either been at the meeting or viewed it remotely by streaming video. We'll talk to you next week. Take care, bye.